Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where famous types eat with their mouth open so they can answer my probing questions. Today I chat to a comedian, writer and TV presenter who's often out of this world. Not only has he chaired Mott the Week for 15 years and toured the globe with his stand-up show, he's also presented TV comedy series based around science and maths, conducted a series of interviews with the late Stephen Hawking and fronted Stargazing Live with Professor Brian Cox. That's the out of this world bit. I spoke to him down the line from his home on the moon, or West London, one or the other. It is, of course, the glorious Dara O'Brien. The best time to write is two glasses of wine in, and then there's a small window of it being you being very funny, yeah. uh, putting on glasses three and four, and then glasses five and six are you sitting back going, God, I was very funny. This is very funny back in glasses three and four. <laughs> Hello, Dara. It is a delight to spend some time with you. We've we've crossed over in a number of places, and I think have exchanged about ten words in our lives. Yes, we have, but always warm. Always uh, warm. That was the key thing. It wasn't. It was never. We don't have beef, ironically, in this situation, which is good. Yeah, the, uh, we'll, we'll get to it by the end of this, but um, oh, no doubt. Now you mentioned beef, so obviously this is called out to lunch. Although we're staying in for lunch at the moment because we're we're still on the edge of lockdown, really. Um, mm. And I sent you sort of what are your food preferences, and you basically suggested that you were some sort of carnival, I think it's fair yeah, to say. I did. I did. Look, look, if the food's on you, yeah. then then grand. I'm, I'm happy to take the journey now and again. I only want you to be happy. I can tell you, I can see the delivery bike wending its way towards you. <laughs> oh, great. So shall okay, I tell good. you what's, what's heading towards your door? Oh, yeah, go on. Or should it be a, should I open and reveal? Or well, it's, be, it's no, already okay. a bit of a reveal, isn't it? It turns out you have a branch of the Argentinian Steakhouse Gaucho within striking distance okay, okay. wow okay, okay. okay. we really have gone beef haven't you i have gone beef you know you, you give me direction and um frankly it's easier than using my imagination i had to order the big sausage platter to kick off with because <laughs> those are three words that clearly deserve to be together uh it's a lot of chorizo and mortilla um and so you know, spice black pudding and then a ribeye i could have got you a 300 gram ribeye but i didn't i got you a 400 gram ribeye Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's not made from him. I'm hoping it's made from a cow. Now, you you had a whole thing about getting into trouble about the words for chips. You talked about a chipper. We, we call them different. They're, they're chippers in Ireland. Right. And they're chippies here. Yeah. You got very excited when you found a chipper in Ireland that was serving chips with peppercorn sauce. It was a pop-up at a comedy festival. And actually another friend contacted and said, oh my God, look at this, they'll do this. And why has that not revolutionised everything? Well, you'll be delighted to know you've got chips and peppercorn sauce on their way <laughs> to you. I couldn't match right. you in any way. So I thought it was a kind of homage to what performers generally eat when they come off stage. I've gone for a Nando's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is a f- sadly quite accurate. Although actually Nando's shuts a little bit earlier for the, for the post-show thing. Does it? Yeah. Your post op- options are severely limited. We all give thanks for the Indian restaurateurs of Britain who are the ones who are still open and serving. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Gordon Ramsay did one of these, an item based on this thing. Oh, it's very difficult to eat healthily on the road kind of thing. And he, in Derby, I think it's worth doing the gig, uh, cooked a meal, cooked a meal in the kitchens in, in, of the theatre in Derby and said, look, and then in with the first guy of this proof that you don't have to just eat badly. And you're going, they don't. 
A, they don't all have industrial kitchens, and B, they don't let you in. You're not allowed to have a go in places, in places' kitchens. Do you mind if you just open the whole thing up, like whatever, and I'll just, yeah, if I've got a camera crew. Um, so like the following, like the following night, it was back to yeah. traipsing around Leicester right. looking for a chip shop. Now then, I think you want to go to your front door. I'll, I'll go upstairs and get the stuff. Yeah. Without, without, without yeah. how this works. I think that's okay, how it works. Okay, cool. Very good. All right. Excellent. So what have you got in front of you, Dara? Oh, yeah, Sorry, I, I also it. sent you um, a Diet Coke. I thought you could, you know, drop some lime into it yourself. You've clearly heard me give out about this in the past, haven't you? <laughs> Just a little bit. Now, I think you might like to know that we've had one other guest who has, uh, what's the technical phrase, banged on remorselessly about the introduction of extra flavours to, to the Coke. And the other yes. one, interestingly, was Jamie Dornan. Mr. Fifty Shades of Grace, let me strap you up and slap you on the ass. So This may be an Irish thing, then, well, it, because he's from Northern Ireland. He's from Northern Ireland, indeed. And I did wonder whether the uh, the, the taste palette, you know, the, the flavour yes. profile of citrus-boosted <laughs> cola was offensive famous to those on the island of Ireland. Oh, is that what the, it is? Uh, the Irish are, have have been suffering from scurvy, yep. uh, even though you know there's no good reason to be. Not not even we don't even have, we're not even a seafaring nation. When you were growing up uh, in in Bray, in County Wicklow, yes, what was food like? Did your parents cook? My mother did. I wouldn't say it was particularly extravagant or particularly fancy. I remember there being a number of Finn's crispy pancakes, a very fine roast. product which we celebrate. Weekly Do you know whatever America? happened to them? Surely there's you could make a an edible modern version of the Finder's Crispy Pancake, couldn't you? I don't think you want to screw with the with the original. If you improve the filling, like if you actually got like a pie filling, a decent pie filling, like whatever, a mince or, yeah. or like a white, you know, let's say a, a chicken and leek type thing, made a better crepe, better breading, would that not work perfectly well I, as a... I think that would probably sell brilliantly in certain districts of West London. <laughs> There was uh, obviously the fish fingers and crisp and all that kind of stuff. Things I remember being her being more of a, like a signature dish, as it were. A very good potato cake. If I could get that potato cake back, that'd be a lovely thing to get again, which was just the potato flour and whatever it is. I suppose the equivalent of bubble and squeak. Art doesn't have a huge food tradition, but it has obviously incredibly rich other traditions. Those I was very much immersed in. I come from a very different culture. I come from an unimaginably different culture to the one that people presume I do in some ways. My parents were very, or my father in particular, very involved in the Irish uh, language movement and the Irish traditional music movement. And he played tons of different instruments and and wrote masses in Irish uh, to be sung, uh, and uh, sent us to schools to be to to be educated through Irish. So it also sounds um, political with a small p. My grandmother, a generation back, was. Involved in the, was, was, was a rebel, proper rebel, <laughs> not like in a, you know, her parents couldn't get a grasp on her, genuinely <laughs> was dressed in camouflage, hiding from the British army, rebel. Did she do um, time? Was she ever caught? No, she wasn't. She tells a story of, it was War of Independence, and the famous story that I remember telling then on stage was of her hiding in a ditch because she was relaying messages between different battalions of what is the old IRA, unconnected to the IRA you've been hearing about for whatever number of years. And she was relaying information as a 16-year-old girl. And she had to lie in a ditch because a British army truck came on the other side, on the road, the other side of the, of the hedge, and stopped on the other side of the hedge. And they got out and they stood there. And she had to lie still in the ditch for whatever number of hours. And then they eventually left and she raced off with the information. So there were stories like this. The British army coming in to search the house for guns. They, 
they were of the generation who nobly but frustratingly never spoke of it. And you're kind of going, ah, Kamala, we could all dine out in this stuff, but you have decided to keep the gold back. So we're singing the song about where have all the men gone, but we're but the actual ones yeah. who are part of family, nobody talked about. You know, there were there were love stories we never knew about. This kind of stuff, you know, they they were just, they just didn't tell us. And then the narrative becomes, you know, what, that family tree that you know, rather than things that happened just before that. But she did all this, and then and like there was people fired shots over her grave when when she passed away. Like the, the government sent out, you know, uh, and she, and she was uh, she was buried in an Irish flag. Like so, she was. Uh, Please she was God probably, by you, uh, you know. If, sorry, let me pour this. That's a, oh, that's the sound of cider being there we poured. Go. That's the cider cider being poured. Fabulous Irish cider. Actually, we, uh, very briefly, I'm going to cut to that as you just as you just drank that. You've said once that you sometimes like to write with a couple of glasses on the go. Two glasses of wine. The best time to write is two glasses of wine in, and then there's a small window of it being you being very funny. Yeah, uh, putting on glasses three and four because you're slightly knocked off your kilter uh, by the two glasses of wine. So you're reacting to yourself. A lot of good comedy is, is reacting. So you're kind of reacting to yourself. It's like you've been slipped slightly out of focus. So now you kind of like you're reacting to yourself. And then glasses five and six, are you sitting back going, God, that was very funny. Very funny back in glasses three and four. <laughs> what is it you like about comedy? Because you've clearly had cause to think about that. Yeah, um, it's the immediacy of it. It's the um, it's the, the the cause and effect. It's the rush. I'm sure there's nobler reasons to do it. I'm sure there's you know people come up and say, "Oh, thank you very much. That was very nice." I wasn't considering your happiness in any way. Towards the end of my time in college, I would walk past lecture theatres and I'd see them as one animal, and I would go if I could go in there and I could say a couple of things and they'll all laugh at me and I'll get a big rush off that. So I began to, you begin to see crowds as a, as a living organism whose existence is only there to basically, you know, tickle your ego. It came from nowhere. I, one joke told in a, in a college debate, which got a huge laugh and a round of applause and a spike uh, dormant till then suddenly shot up a guy, like a Geiger counter went off in me of, that was nice. And I've been chasing that high. I, I've asked this question of a number of people. Have you ever had cause to investigate that need or desire in a therapeutic situation? No, I haven't. I am distressingly for my job and unusually uh, in terms of the popular narrative, quite content, quite centred yeah, emotionally. It's not coming from a place of that I have sadness and I need to... This is, it's not yeah, because mum and pop were ignoring you and not laughing yeah. at your gags when you were a kid. You just like it when an audience laughs. I have the thing, as long as it's, I'm not like in, genuinely fall into an actual depression, then I'm happy to skate around the need for love from strangers. I have a lot of respect for those who have actually worked with this, like whatever, but no, I've not ever had come close to there their being that kind of... Um, a lot of comedy, it struck me, is about mining the self and finding a way in your head to turn the inconsequential or the unlikely into material. And therefore, the last thing you'd want to do is fix yourself. The brokenness is what makes it work. We are trained in the weirdest way uh, to work in any kind of conditions. We've done gigs in back in the corner of pizza restaurants, on boats, anywhere. So we tend to work very well with things going wrong. Like it's like people in interviews go, what's your most embarrassing story? And you're going, Jesus, if I had an embarrassing story left. <laughs> Honestly, at this point, if something terrible happens, if I if I arrive in a hotel room with no pants on or something, there's a part of me going, fantastic, this is 10 minutes, I'll get something out of this. This is so useful, you know. Also, I have a kind of a thing about people acting like that's the key. Oh, the, but the greatest comedians were all depressed. 
there, there is no higher rate of depression than comedy than any other industry, and certainly in the performance industry. I think in some cultures, it's re- America kind of really idolizes the notion of it being really dark, and you come from a very dark place or whatever. That's not necessarily perfectly fine people, lovely company, great to hang out with, very nice people to work with. I think the very easy cliche, unfortunately, uh, the tears of a clown are the the ironic, and I and I bang on them, but the ironic kind of clash between people being depressed, but also making other people happy. Oh. Mm. My my favourite rant is about Pagliacci the Clown. Tell me, I'm going to eat some chicken while you do that. Man goes to the doctor. He says, doctor, doctor, I feel really depressed. And the doctor says, here's what you do. The great clown Pagliacci is in town tonight. He's doing a show. Go to the show. Enjoy. Laugh. Um, feel your mood lift. That's, that's what you should do. And the patient goes, but doctor, I am Pagliacci. Right. And there are so many things. It's quoted repeatedly, this story. Uh, and there's so many things wrong with this. So many. Who gets a booking on the afternoon of a show in a in a town they've never been in before at, at, with a with a counselor? Who it does? You don't. I don't. Know that's how psychotherapy works, or, or, or anything. I, I love, love the way oh. you're pulling you're pulling apart this story on grounds of it. it's not realistic that he would have been able to get an appointment with a therapist on the afternoon. And uh, that well, that's your problem with the, that's your problem with the story. He arrives at three o'clock. Look at the sound check. <laughs> You're going to get it, grab a quick meal and then go do the show, right? I know the life, right? But equally, I don't think you can just ring up somebody and go, hello, do you have an appointment? They go, no, you, you can't just, I mean, we establish a relationship and because of that, blah, blah, blah. That's how, you know, these kind of psychological sciences work. You don't just drop in. It's not like getting a tooth fixed. You drop in and do it. But also, this is a trained medical professional who, when faced with somebody saying, I am suffering from clinical depression, yeah. basically goes... You need to laugh, mate. You need to go to a show. There's a guy on. Go see him. Cheer up. Stop being so depressed. Go see him. Have a go on. Have a bit of a laugh for yourself. That'll solve your problems. Who does that? No one does that. That's no one's advice in this situation. Okay. So we'll, uh, we'll accept that therapy has never been a part of your uh, your armoury. Um, it's, it, is, it is. It is. One of the things. Nobody goes, oh my God, but the work he does is so good because he came from such a dark yeah, place. No, I a line this in stage where nobody ever goes, my God, your kitchen looks, your bathroom looks fantastic. I know my bathroom, my, my plumber is depressed. Uh, his, <laughs> his tiling comes from a very dark place. There. No one, no one does that about any other job, but apparently our job is improved by, by us being emotionally damaged. No, they I mean, listen, I have the same emotional makeup as anybody else. It's very, generally quite content. It, uh, by the way, the steak is lovely. Oh, steak good, is good. good. Mm. When, when Mock the Week came along, I have to talk to you about this for a bit. Right. Um, not least because you've done, what, 15 years? Jesus. Yeah, you've got a whole bunch of comics. You are also, you know, making sure that everybody in class has a nice time. And you're, you're uh, absolutely aware that you have to make it good for the viewer. Do you enjoy that element of the job? I do. I mean, there were many years of Mock the Week that were actually not that fun in some ways. There were very strong personalities who were very staccato, you know, and Frankie and Russell in particular were very, very good. So Frankie Ball, which which Russell are you referring to? Russell? Russell Howard. Russell Howard, Frankie and Russell Howard were the two forces. And they're both very good at what they do. And so it would almost like, and Frankie in particular had a tendency to kill a topic by bringing it to its brutal end, which people loved, absolutely adored, but it made it more difficult to engender any conversation or something. There was a period, actually, where Mock the Week was really quite criticised by a lot of people as Mm. being a bear pit and you'd get comics coming on going, oh, it's denigrating, you know, the political discourse and all of that. How difficult did you find that? You really don't get to pick um, your showbiz marriage a lot of the time. Sure. There are shows I think would have suited me more and certainly there were years where I was, all I was doing was Traffic Cop. Uh, and I was kind of measured because there's seven people talking and it wasn't a chance for me to make up stuff and mess around. 
So there were years where it wasn't as much fun uh, as it could have been. I mean, genuinely, I remember sitting down once while one of the rounds was on and with a piece of paper, because I have nothing to do at that point, writing at the next four years of my career going, I've got a tour. I mean, what, do I need this? I don't, I don't well, while, the, while the other panellists were talking. They were doing their, they were doing their buzzer. I press a better buzzer now and again. And I'm going, well, 2012 is all right. 2013 is a lean year. But I've still got The Apprentice, so that'll be okay. And working it, did I need it? I was stuck with it during bits where it didn't particularly flatter me. And then it sort of evolved with this generation to a much more conversational show. But it it retains a surprising amount of baggage. Either between those who think it was a really savage show that was incredibly unfriendly to um, younger comics coming through, didn't feature anywhere near enough uh, women or minorities or whatever. And that was, yes, I I totally agree. It absolutely was. And also those contradictory who think, oh, it's not as good as it used to be because it used to be really savage. You know, and the numbers aren't that you're you're viewing figures. Everyone's viewing figures at home. That's the other thing. It's the only benchmark I can bring to it is that I enjoy it significantly more now than I ever did. And partly because this generation I work with are much more kind of conversational, much more collaborative generations. So there, there is a sense sometimes that it's almost a finishing school for comedians is, breaking into television. That's where they turn up. It, no, it totally is. I mean, again, and uh, while I, I didn't want to be Miss Jean Brody um, <laughs> standing there. My comedians are the creme de la creme. Yeah. In fact, I've never read nor seen Private Miss Jean Brody, but anyway, a teacher. I didn't want. The comparison I normally pick is a terrible Richard Dreyfus film uh, called. Mr. Holland's Opus. That's the one. So that story is about a music teacher who wants to be a great composer and he takes a job as a music teacher in a school and it's just a stopgap while he's trying to embark on his great career and it turns out 30 years later that all the children that he schooled are his symphony. It turns out the great career was was the one he had all the time. I know. Yeah. But that I am there shepherding through people which is very much the case of what happens on Mock the Week, yeah. is that people come and do it for a couple of years. It's actually quite a demanding show to do. Independent of it being tough in the room, it's a demanding show. You, you shoot come in for about two and a half hours, don't you? Two and a half hours. And like an old round, those rounds at the end mm. where they have to walk forward, there's nothing you have to do which is as difficult in QI or what I like to do. You just talk on those shows. Mock the Week, because of its format, demands you actually have actual jokes, actual material. Like, I mean, and, you, and, you step forward, you can't just Do they get that stuff in advance and they're therefore able to... They go in well-armed. They have to. Yeah. I mean, they, they, we do 40 minutes of those of those things. 40 So you have to go in and kind of have some sense of what you're going to do. In fact, the way I look at it is, even we get people who are really good at it, they, uh, who are really good at doing a stand-up comedy, even they. It's not like anyone could do it. No, really. People used to talk about having memory palaces. I think Frank had stuff stacked over his head of, 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 of lines he wanted to get out. Because each line has, is perfectly worded and crafted yeah. and has to be delivered perfectly worded and crafted. So absolutely. Do you, yeah. g- do you give thanks that you are in the chair not having to do that? Hugely, hugely. <laughs> I would never guest on this show. It's a terrible show to do. It's not a show that you can just drop in and talk a bit of shite on. The, uh, we all love those shows and we all love to be able to do those shows, but the, uh, but it's not one of those, unfortunately. So we get people for about two, three years, generally. So we won't see Ramesh again. We won't see Catherine Ryan again. We won't see Sarah Pascoe again. We will probably not see James Acaster again. Even of that generation, people pass through, become too big for us. And it's like, okay, fine, I don't need to be doing this anymore. Hello, I'm Giles Brandreth, and with my friend, the world-famous lexicographer Susie Dent, every week we do a podcast all about words and language and their origin. We're all over the place this week, all over Great Britain, all over London, all over the world. We're talking about the origins of place names. There's somewhere in Bromley called Pratt's Bottom. Hard to believe, but it's true. Can I tell you about Charing Cross? 
Please. Charring goes back to an old English word meaning a turn or a bend, either referring to a bend in the River Thames at this point or the bend in the old Roman road that existed. But the cross refers to the Eleanor Cross erected here and in several other places actually by Edward I to commemorate his first wife, which is Eleanor of Castile, and her funeral procession went from cross to cross. So it's got a lovely story of love. Am I right in thinking that people think that the centre of London is Charing Cross? That when you see a sign, when you're approaching London, it says seven miles to central London, it is seven miles to Charing Cross. Absolutely right. All distances calculated from there. So if you'd like to hear more about the etymology of London, tune in to the best entertainment podcast, Something Rhymes with Purple, which is available on all the podcast providers that you know and love. We're not just saying it's the best entertainment podcast. We won an award. Incredible. <laughs> Brat's bottom. Hard to believe. So I have to come back to science. You're a comedian. You love being on tour. You love the laughter. Yeah, yeah. But I always get the sense that you're almost hugging yourself with glee and surprise and joy that you get to do all this other stuff, the math shows, stargazing uh, with Brian Cox. Is it the privilege it feels like? One of the pictures uh, over the shoulder that you can see, and it won't be on the podcast, is of me and Brian standing next to Buzz Aldrin. So things of that have happened that there was no earthly reason. I mean, like, I'm not actually a working scientist or... I mean, I often wonder if people think you've, you know, you've got an undergraduate degree in your subject. Yeah. I can imagine them sometimes thinking you've got more than that. The presumption that I have a PhD is very widespread and and deeply flattering and very irritating to my university, I'd imagine. So so I'm interested in in this kind of storytelling narrative because that plays into the kind of comedy you do. You tell stories. Yeah. All of that yeah. makes you sound like the kind of guy who would go off to university and do a liberal arts degree. Um, and a, yeah, lot of, a lot of what you did there, because you were in the debating society and you've referred to exotic women and drink having derailed you from theoretical physics. But science was the thing. Was it just that you had a facility for this? You were really, really good at maths and physics. I got entranced with the whole thing. A, I, I, liked, I liked the way maths works. I had numbers. I like puzzles are like solving things the uh, and I was quite good at it and so that was a thing that always came to quite easily and you kind of so often I think in school you go for the thing that you find sure easy to do it turns out there isn't really a job in just sitting around doing puzzles the uh there, there isn't a gig for that is there not yeah uh, you see what you have to be really it turns out really really good at some point the peloton moves and you're up the mountain up, up to Wes, and you're holding on for dear life and then they lose you. And, you, and did you remember that point? The first of the maths exams, a, a subject I have aced for whatever number of years now, I went to the first one, I went, oh my God, this is unimaginably more difficult than I've ever found it. It blew my mind a bit. Academically, I had a very bad second year. I got to a mediocre grade and that was me. That was me out. And the maths guy who I will always thank and name was a guy called Sean Deneen, who's the head of the maths department. And he said, do you want to do it again? And I said, yeah, I would love to do it again. He said, I will write a letter that I am convinced that you could have done better. They let me back in again. I got a proper degree. So two things happened because of it. I could have been out after three years. I ended up leaving after five, having run a newspaper and got a decent degree and won a national debating championship or whatever. All those things happened in the in the ghost career that I only had because one man let me come back into university. It's only because I was thinking about it the other day. I went... Geez, what would have happened if I hadn't, if I just left after three years? Because presumably I could have still told jokes, I could have still done this career, but I probably wouldn't have been 
ever asked to do anything with science. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have felt I had any ownership of the, of the subject. I would have been colder, I think, towards academia and towards learning and towards all this because I would have been chewed up and spat out by it. Um, uh, how, how much of your steak have you got through, by the way? Uh, do you know what? There's I mean, you can move that amount left. Well, look, you can put it one time. We can move to dessert. He says for the rhythm. Okay, give me one good? last tiny bit. One last. You, bit. You it's really good. On. It's actually very, very good. I'm just having a look the, at my cheesecake. Right, I have a um, you should Dolce have de leche um, cheesecake here, which is that's what Gaucho has sent you, and I've got a Nando's finest. I think it's a uh, a white chocolate raspberry swirl. That's All right, that's, that's, that's perfectly that's reasonable, doesn't it? You know, Nando's deeply reliable. We love Nando's. That is very good. Okay, this uh, cheesecake is perfectly fine. Because it's Dolce de Leche, um, it's a bit too caramelised for, for my taste. But no, I'll, I'll happily nibble away at it there. I mean, I'm quite a cheesecake purist. I think oh. I've said this on, on other podcasts. Uh, I, well, I, there are no other podcasts, so feel free to tell me your position okay. on cheesecake. The, um, which is that there are two types of, uh, of uh, cheesecakes, which is the cold cheesecake. The more gelatinous one, the more kind of like cool Philadelphia cheese, I think, one, uh, which is... Food of the Heavens, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, and then there's a baked cheesecake, also, I think, New York style. Um, yeah, it's an American style baked Yeah, cheesecake. which is fluffier and uh, it's like eating a Caramac bar. It's put your teeth on edge and it's horrendous. So and you're, you're not, not as much of a fan of the baked cheesecake as well, you are of the... You're quite, you're quite safe to say that, yeah. And there is, honestly, my family, my wife has this eye roll of for when they delivered the one and it's not the one I thought it was going to be. Uh, and is that when you have to like, have the talk? And she's like, well, "What are you going to do?" Like, I mean, you could have just asked. I said, "I know." But the thing is, you go, you go. Is it a cold cheesecake? And the waiter will always go, "Well, well as opposed to us heating it up before we <laughs> deliver it to you." You're going, "No, you know, cold prepared." And they, so they, it's, it's not even. Often, I found waiters that don't don't know the distinction themselves between the two. But no, that that fluffy one is just. I can't do that at all. Hello friends, just a very quick break from the lunching because Black Friday is upon us. No thumping neighbours this year to beat them to the last cut price 80 inch telly. What you can do though is get 20% off the Out to Lunch merch range online and have it all delivered to your door. You've got a choice of three luxury items. All splash out on all of them for Christmas, why not? There's a sturdy travel cup. Ah, lovely. A gorgeous denim apron and a softer than soft tea towel. I'm stroking it now. So soft in fact that we should probably shoot a TV ad with a lovely puppy bouncing about in it, but we won't. To see the range, head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com. That's outtolunch, all one word, dot backstreetmerch, all one word, dot com. And that all-important code for 20% off is LUNCH20. That's 20% off for Black Friday with the code LUNCH20. But now, let's get back to the chat. One of the things that I've noticed, I follow you on Twitter, and the morning after a gig you will come up with a list of the discrete topics that were discussed on that gig. So clearly yes. you have a framework. You've talked about how you build from a 30-minute set to a 45 to an hour and eventually get to two hours, and that it's not that you've come up with other subjects, it's that each subject has expanded, like, expanded yeah. Yeah, like ink across a piece of blotting paper. But it's the, the way that you customise to each place, and I get the impression that it's that that you really enjoy the hundred minutes that are there every night are the bit I, I stress my head out uh, over most of the time because they're the bits you spend the month writing so they're the bits that you want to interlink well and to tell the story well and for all the stuff about how much information am I giving you now and I don't want to give you too much information because then I'm going to reveal information and all that stuff is measured out that's all the sweat goes in and then you go in and you do the fucking around bit where you go hey what do you do and a guy goes well actually funnily enough 
I fire, you know, dead people into into the space for NASA or whatever. I don't know, or whatever they say, like whatever. And then that becomes a thing. And while I'm very happy to run with that and embrace that, the Lego set of what word goes here and what word goes there to create the effect has become increasingly the, what you take the, the pleasure in, like whatever. I mean, this show in particular was a frustrating one because it, it, there's no DVDs anymore. So the only version we could do was a 60 minute edited version and it became impossible to edit it down because the, the structure was so intricate. There were so many bits that referred back to other bits and then you needed to have seen this for this bit to work and then the finale was a series, like a crescendo of all of these back references interlinked and it became a piece of engineering and I'm very proud of it but it meant it was a kind of slightly irritating what people went, hang on, I don't get this. Why? Where was so is this, is this the applied mathematician's approach? It is structure. Structure is everything. And it's like, it's a piece of music. You want to hit them with something, you want to hit them with the da 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 at the start. Then you have the, then you have the more refined kind of movements at different stages. And then you come back to da 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 at the end. The first thing you have to do is reassure an audience that you're not shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're, they're called the trust me, I'm a comic uh, jokes. <laughs> right. They're very important. I mean, there's a, there was one of these ads for you know there's ads for master classes you see yeah. at the start of YouTube clips now and there's a Steve Martin one and the only clip they left in which is like I don't get comedians who don't have a funny joke at the start that is a prime piece of real estate a really important moment you're wasting by not coming out and going boom so you worry about an opening joke and you worry about a closing joke obviously but the uh, but the opening jokes are very important there that you just calm down you're here here I mean and you can relax them a bit into right you're in my world now particularly if they've come and seen you on tour you can go okay there must be an element to which you know my work. You've paid for these tickets in advance. So therefore, but you can never fully take that for granted. In the first three rows, there's always the other half of somebody who likes your work, yeah. but they're just there because, well, somebody has to go along with her to this, like whatever. And you can see them going, no, I, I, I've had enough time to not really like you. <laughs> so... I have to say, we're, we're, I, I think you haven't done it yet. We're both about to do a similar thing, which is, are you not about to play a drive-in or have you done it? Hmm. I'm doing a drive-in, as, as it sounds, in about a week and a half time. Right, I'm doing, doing a dri- I'm doing a drive-in on Saturday. There is an element to which I'll be very happy to stand up and, and, and tell a story. I'll be, I'll be happy to walk around with a microphone in my hand and feel like I, I'm doing my job, which I haven't had, been able to do since March the sure. 9th or whatever. The, uh, but it also, it's also ridiculous. Yeah, who the hell? No, I say this to my agent going, great, how's that going? Are we doing all right? Um, and then had a, a moment of going... If you had said to me in February, great news, I've got you two gigs where you walk around in this at five o'clock in the afternoon to a load of people in cars, you'd have gone, you kid, no, that's, you know, that's... The weird thing, is, and I know this is probably won't surprise you, is that uh, from when I went to see this lineup on uh, a, few, a couple of weeks ago, um, all approval is shown through the honking of horns. And yes, you have to invite this and encourage it. And yeah, uh, a, a, com- a comedian friend of mine said, it's actually a bit of a pain in the arse because yeah. you're trying to tell the next joke and suddenly me, 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 comes through like whatever. And so it's like there's certain comedians work very, very well in arenas because yeah. they have a style where they deliver a joke and there's a pause while the joke rolls down mm-hmm. the end of the room and back again. And the certain comics, like I've never, it's never been a huge issue for me whether I should play arenas or not, but it wouldn't anyway work because I add on bits and tag bits and there's all sentences drifting off. Um, and it's just the way I, the way I talk. I think the car thing is going <laughs> to kill that. I'm just wondering, you know, Mr. Holland's opus, the idea of him conducting car horns and thinking, but I was oh my meant God, to... God, it all comes full circle. So at the end, I do my great, 
Irish slash British symphony, and mm. it's just people going. The other thing is, um, I don't know if you've looked at the setup, but I am now con- looking at the weather forecast with. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, there's no roof on these places, not on this one. Of course not. And, and instead, you say it's people going to boom, 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 <laughs> and watching you yeah, through that, that was, rain. And through the windscreen wipers, just in case wonder, yes, anybody was, was wondering sorry, what it was that was. It was more of a visual, that one. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. Um, it, there's no reason for these things to work, <laughs> except they're all we have. <laughs> And that has changed everything. Well, you know, it's the same with uh, normally doing out to lunch would have been in a restaurant, but here we are, you in your your man cave in the basement and me in in mine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's been an absolute joy. Um, I feel I feel we only scratched the surface. I've, the, uh, I've, uh, and I feel there's more steak and uh, well, there, there is there. literally more steak. Uh, my yes. my chicken is all gone. I'm I'm just you know down to bones. So thank you for staying in for lunch with me. It has been a, a joy and a delight. Well, that was nourishing in so many ways. Thank you, Dara, and sorry for ordering you such a large piece of beef. I'm not sorry at all, you know that. Um, Dara had a takeaway from Gaucho, who have a number of Argentinian steakhouses across the UK, and I had a cheeky Nando's, Portuguese, African, fast food that specialises in chicken. You can find them, well, you know where you can find them, bloody everywhere. And if you're not quite sated, do rifle through our previous episodes. There you can fill up on the likes of Jamie Dornan, David Harewood and Tracy Ullman, to name but a few. And please do pass on your favourite episodes to friends and family comment and give us a five star review it does help us to make more Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production, the music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg, the mix engineer was Josh Gibbs Jemima Rathbone was assistant producer and editor, the producer is Selena Ream and the executive producer is Darby Doris, additional production is from Steve Ackerman, next time it's comedian, author and actor Sarah Pascoe so Jeremy Paxman and I once spent three minutes together. Hello, how are you? Hello, how are you? He said to me, and he's an interviewer, he said, what do you do? Three minutes, and he got off and went, you're obsessed with sex. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> 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 <laughs>